All right. Well, good morning, church. Morning, good morning. Good to see everybody. Uh, if we haven't met, my name is Paul. I'm the teaching pastor here. So thankful that you've chosen uh, to join us in worship this morning. If you're a guest, I just want to give you a very special welcome. Uh, one thing that we would ask uh, real quick guests this morning, at some point before you leave, in front of you there is a QR code. Uh, if you would get your phone out, scan that QR code, it will direct you to lpguest.com. Uh, if you would be so kind to fill out the digital guest information card, that would be awesome. Uh, and uh, we'll donate $5 in your honor if you do that. Uh, and we would, we would love to have you do that so we can connect with you, uh, so we can donate uh, to one of our partner ministries. Uh, well, today is uh, a special. Um, you might have noticed some of these black t-shirts, the folks in the black t-shirts with the blue writing here. Uh, these are, uh, anybody wearing that shirt is a life group leader. And so this, uh, today, this week, we kick off our next term of life groups. Uh, we say, you know, very proudly on our front windows, we want to be a church where no one walks alone. Uh, and that's a bold statement uh, because you can fail really easily. Uh, and frankly, we do a lot of times. Um, however, life groups are how we try and we give our best effort to walk alongside people. Uh, and so if you are not yet in a life group, we would love to have you uh, get plugged in. Uh, we have several different groups. We have student groups. Uh, we have a women's group meets on Tuesday evenings. We have several family groups. Uh, we're doing something. I've said it several weeks. I just want to make sure you're aware. Uh, something called Life Group United this week. And so if you have... Uh, historically been in my life group or uh, Rich Klingle and Aaron, Aaron Newland's life group. Um, we have a, a special thing going on Wednesday evening for five or six weeks. Uh, and also, if you're not yet in a life group, we want to invite you to that. Um, and so what we're going to do is meet as a large group, which is not typically what we do. We're going to meet together and then, Lord willing, leaders will emerge and we're going to multiply out into several groups out of that. And so if you're not yet plugged in, that is an open invitation to you, 6.30 here, Wednesday evening. We would love uh, to see you there. So thanks uh, for considering that, and thanks in advance for uh, participating. We look forward to that. Well, today we're going to continue on uh, in our series going through the book of Revelation. And so um, we are, uh, you know, Revelation, there's all sorts of different views, all sorts of different um, Concepts, it's an incredibly important book. And what we've said each and every week is that the Revelation is more about present hope than it is a future calendar. And the reason there is it's really easy, I think, to potentially get distracted and try and understand all of these little details, when in reality what we need to see is that Jesus is Lord, Jesus is King, Jesus wins. Okay, that's the ultimate point we're going for in this, week, in this series. Uh, today we're going to be in Revelation 12, 13, and one verse in 14, so we got quite a bit of scripture to cover. I'm going to be reading a lot of text, but before we get into that, I want to first share a story about a time when I was, uh, I hit the, the trifecta, a terrible uh, husband, father, and theologian, okay? So I need to, uh, it's the triple crown of awfulness. Um, and so I achieved it uh, not too long ago, about uh, a little over five years ago, so May 13th, 2018, Okay, May 13, 2018, if you are a, a mother in the room, you might notice that date. That is Mother's Day. All right, well, at that time, my lovely wife, uh, was, who was just leading us in worship, um, she, uh, she was like 17 months pregnant um, with our, <laughs> our, really pregnant, okay, with our oldest son. And it's May 13th, it's Mother's Day, and, and Maddie goes, hey, did you get me anything for Mother's Day? And I said, no. She's like, why? I'm like, well, you didn't have the baby. Yeah. <laughs> Not good. All right, I'm like, well, 
you, what do you mean you want a Mother's Day present? You, uh, the baby's not here. Like we, you did, we, we, I know this now. Thea was born May 18th, right? And so what I had failed to see um, was that my wife had been a mother for like 17 months, you know, like the, the nine and a half months or whatever that she was pregnant, right? And, and I had failed to see that. And, and theologically, of course, I know that. that. That baby is alive. He is created in God's image, knit together by God. He is, he's been alive from the start, right? But yet I failed to acknowledge my lovely wife and her being a mother. She was already a mother, but not yet had she fully uh, realized all of the responsibilities and blessings that come with taking care of a baby. So there's this tension of already a mother, not yet fully realized. And the the reason I want to emphasize that is because it is a critically important principle when we come to interpreting Scripture and to understanding sort of a greater timeline. And I said we don't want to get too lost in a timeline, but I do think it's important uh, to know. I have mentioned this numerous times from stage, this concept of already and not yet, but I thought today it might be helpful as we engage in this text to sort of draw it out for us uh, with a little bit of a diagram, okay? And so on the screens, uh, there's, a, there's a line, all right? And so this line represents all of history leading to, at this point, what we believe, what the scriptures promise us is that one day Jesus is going to come back. We call that the second coming of Christ. Okay, and so when Jesus comes back, he is going to establish a forever kingdom. This new heavens, new earth, all things new, wonderful kingdom. Okay, and so when Jesus does that, we say that that is the end of the old age, all of this, and it will be the beginning of a new age. Does that make sense? So from creation until here, it's sort of one mega age. Now, there is a second timeline that's really important. So there's a second line, all right? The second line, which is gold, I don't know if you can see it in the back. I chose poorly. I was trying to design well with this gold color anyway. So the second line, you know, it's, it's Jesus's new kingdom, but it's also, there's a line here. Well, what, what is this? That is when Jesus first came to earth, okay? So it is Jesus' first coming, and so we can throw that up on the screen. So Jesus' first coming, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and a spiritual kingdom. And so already, you and I, we live in the reality of Jesus' spiritual kingdom, okay? And yet, we await the not yet of Jesus' eternal future kingdom, okay? Does that make sense? So in this middle here, One more slide. We exist, so we're somewhere here. We don't know when Jesus is coming back. Maybe we're right here. Maybe we're right here. I hope we're right here, right? We exist in this already and not yet where we are citizens of a spiritual kingdom awaiting for Jesus to create his forever kingdom. Does that make sense? Are you tracking with me, right? We exist in this already and not yet, okay? So the reason that's really important for us to understand is because I think it changes the way we live. It changes how we understand the events that are happening around us, and it makes us aware that we are citizens of a spiritual kingdom already as we await the future kingdom, as in the not yet, okay? And so I just want us to hold that intention as we begin to engage more deeply with the scriptures and and just understand that concept and that principle. Okay? I want to pray for us, and then we're going to in, get into the Word. Now, Father, I'm thankful again, just as 
Brad's just did such a good job of preparing our hearts for worship this morning. And Lord, I want to just thank you for him and his heart for you. Father, as we open your word this morning, would you open it to us? Would you help us understand? Uh, this is a difficult book to understand, but you wrote it for us. And so we ask that you would give us your Holy Spirit to open our eyes for this word to be living and active in us as you promise it will be. Lord, help me communicate and teach clearly. Get me out of the way. Uh, let your glory shine above and beyond all. It's in Christ's name that we pray and ask these things. Amen. Revelation chapter 12. Uh, last week, Ben did a great job walking us through chapters 6 and 7, uh, where we saw sort of this wrath of God being poured out upon the earth. Now we're sort of moving into a new scene. You can almost think of it as a movie. Scene ends, new scene. John, who is writing this book, is seeing new and different things, and he's writing those to us. Okay, so the Apostle John says this in this revelation that he is being given. He says in verse 1, And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns. And on his heads, seven diadems, his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. All right. So um, it's passages like this that when those who are unfamiliar with Christianity or maybe have a pessimistic view of Christianity say, y'all are crazy. Okay. Because we believe this. But here's where it's really, really important to understand the genre that this book is written within. This is apocalyptic in nature. And so, apocalyptic literature, if I can lean on my, my bachelor's degree in English, which I typically fail at miserably. But anyway, apocalyptic literature, it, it really is symbolic in nature. It uses symbols and images to present to us greater truths and realities in a way that we can begin to understand. And so we have here three characters that are introduced to us. There is a woman who is pregnant, there is a baby, and there is a dragon. So what are those characters? Here's where we have to look, get, get on our interpretive, you know, sort of symbolic lens. This woman, it's almost as if John is seeing in this scene a history of Israel in a moment. This woman is representative of the nation of Israel, in, in my view, and I think in many of the uh, views of theologians, much smarter than I. So this woman is Israel, and she is giving birth to who? The Messiah, Jesus. Okay, the red dragon, who has swept down a third of the stars, that would be Satan, very clearly. And the third of the stars, we can refer to those as demons, who are Satan's minions, in a sense. And so what's happening is Satan sees Israel, he knows the Messiah is going to destroy him. And so what Satan does is everything he possibly can to hunt down Israel, God's people, to destroy and prevent the Messiah. Again, this sort of snapshot of the history of Israel. I think most of the, what, we, what we just read is the already. This has already happened. This is mostly past tense. Now, what happens? Well, Satan hunts down God's people. If you look throughout Scripture, you see how God's people have been attempted to be wiped out by world leaders. You think of Pharaoh. You think of Haman from the book of Esther. Even in our more present day, you look at Hitler, right? This goal of destroying 
God's people. That is his goal. He's going to do everything he can. But here's the really, really good news. While Satan is on this goal to rob, kill, steal, and destroy, we already know that Jesus has won. Right? We just talked about already Jesus has crushed the head of the serpent, and not yet is the serpent fully dead. He is a defeated enemy, and yet he is still active and alive. Does that make sense? Again, it's this tension where we have to hold in tension the already and the not yet. Satan will do everything to destroy God's people that he can. But here's the really, really good news. Satan cannot prevent what God has promised. He can't. He cannot prevent what God has promised. Look at the birth of Jesus just as in one small I shouldn't use that word when I'm talking about the birth of Jesus. One example, one singular, that's a better word, one single example of how God will always make good on his promises, no matter how much Satan wants to prevent them. What are the promises for us? There are so many throughout Scripture that we will be with Christ, that we will reign with Christ, that we're now co-heirs with Christ. All of those things are true for us presently, even if we don't yet fully experience them. Okay? So the text goes on there, I'll paraphrase. Satan chases uh, Israel, essentially. The baby is born. Satan really throws a fit, essentially, and we're going to read now in verse 7 of chapter 12. Now war arose in heaven. It's as if we've now cut to a different scene. John is seeing this. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. It's amazing to consider a war in heaven. I think we're so often blind to spiritual realities. And we believe, I believe this is past tense, again, this view of history. But he was defeated, and there, were no longer any place, there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. The ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. I recall Jesus saying, I saw Satan fall like lightning, right? Jesus would have seen these events take place. Verse 10, and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers, have been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives, even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth, and see, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. It's a war in heaven. Satan is cast down to earth. He brings with him a host of his unholy angels. Again, we call those demons. And what was able to secure the victory, really the blood of the lamb, which is stunning in that context, amazing. Jesus and who Jesus is is what actually secured the victory. What we have to see here is that Satan is already defeated, as I said before, but Satan is not yet dead. It says now he has been cast down to earth, and he is really roaming the earth angry. Very, very angry trying to rob, kill, steal, and destroy. So that's the context. And now we continue on. 
Continue on in verse 17 to finish out verse, chapter 13. It says this, Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and who hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. So again, this picture is a furious, angry dragon ready to wreak havoc. And then we pick up in chapter 13. All right? So we've got this first character, Satan. Chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea. This is the very next thing that happens. With ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its head. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. Okay, so now we're introduced to this second major evil character, and we have to ask the question, well, what is that character? Who is that character? And to really see that, we can go all the way back into the Old Testament and the prophet Daniel. Okay, so if we go to Daniel chapter 8, if I can flip there, I hope I bookmarked it for moments like this, otherwise that would be really awkward. Okay, good, I did it. All right, verse 23, all right, this, this revelation, this vision from Daniel, it says this, verse 23, and at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction, and shall succeed in what he does, and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great Without warning, he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of pieces, and he shall uh, prince of princes, excuse me, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The Bible is amazing; it's so interconnected. Thousands of years before this, Daniel the prophet sees this vision of the very beast that we're just introduced to here uh, in chapter 13. This beast, we refer to this beast as the Antichrist. Okay. That's who this beast is, this one who has been risen up by Satan, the dragon, given Satan's authority, given Satan's power to be the one who appears as the Messiah, okay? And just hang on with me, all right? Hang on with me because I know this sounds a little bit crazy. I know we're getting into a lot of different details. I know there's different interpretations that you could take, but I think Scripture is clear on this. Now we're going to jump to verse 5 of chapter 13. And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and conquer them. And authority was given to it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Now, again, bear with me. We seem to now be in a different scene. This is where that graphic of the already and not yet, I think, is really, really helpful to keep in mind. Most scholars would, would understand and, and would view um, the coming of the Antichrist at a time very, very close to the second coming of Christ. Remember that line on the far side we had where we said, Jesus is going to come again, 
and he's going to establish the new heavens and the new earth, this eternal kingdom. It's going to be glorious. That's the beginning of the second age. Well, the, the scriptures seem to indicate that there is a period of intense persecution, of intense hardship, and we call this period the Great Tribulation, okay? This escalated period of tribulation and hardship. And yet, we already experience tribulation and hardship, don't we? Already we experience the curse of sin. Already we experience pain. Already we experience death. Already we experience all of these hard things that are a direct result of Satan. And yet, I believe not yet, have we reached the point of the great tribulation where the Antichrist will appear as though he is the Messiah, a counterfeit false Messiah. That seems to be a period, again, very, very close to when Jesus is going to return. And it says here he will rule for 42 months. That's three and a half years. You could take that literally, or you could take it a different way. I would, rank, I would align myself more literal in this particular instance. Okay? Everybody understand exactly what's happening? Good. Great. No questions. Awesome. I'm glad we're all on the same page. Okay, we're going to jump down to, to verse 11. Then I saw another beast. So now we have a second beast. We've got the dragon, the first beast, second beast. Verse 11, chapter 13. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth, and it had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. Okay, <laughs> so now a second beast arises. And again, I believe this is in the period of the Great Tribulation. Uh, the scriptures say um, in, in other places it seem, would seem to indicate that there's been a temple rebuilt in Jerusalem and the Antichrist would be seated in that temple. He has taken over in authority. And the second beast is raised up and the purpose of the second beast is what? Is to really direct people's worship toward the first beast. To really say, hey, no, you need to worship this guy. I believe it's a literal man. You can look at it as a nation if you want to. But this literal man, the Antichrist, likely has the power of the nations, a one world nation. Everybody's like, wow, look what he did. He united the world. There's world peace. Awesome. This is great. Let's worship this guy. And this second beast is all about directing attention, directing worship toward the first beast. Now, continuing on the text, because it's like, well, how do you do that? How does this beast do that? Well, look at verse 13 says this, it performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven on earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Now, if you're a guest this morning, you picked a heck of a Sunday to attend this morning, right? So once again, just stick with me. 
what, what is happening here. So again, he really tells us, really tells us how it is that he, this, the second beast is able to attribute and really garner worship of the first beast. And the way he does it is he's given these supernatural powers, not by God, but by Satan. Satan empowers this second beast to work miraculous signs, miraculous wonders. People see these miraculous wonders. They see these miraculous signs, and they're like, wow, that has real authority, real power. This must be true. It reminds me of when Jesus was first walking the earth, and the Pharisees would demand a sign of him. All right, that's what we want. We want to see power. We want to see authority. And this beast has it, but it's an unholy authority. It's an unholy power. And again, his goal is to worship the beast. That is Satan's goal. From the start, Satan has always wanted our worship. He's always wanted the affection and the allegiance of our hearts, and he's been doing everything he possibly can to get it. Right? When it says they're worshiping the beast, well, who put the beast in power? The dragon. Right? So this worship of the Antichrist is ultimately a worship of Satan. Now, a couple of things I think we need to see here. One of the, when we think of Revelation, those in the Christian world, we hear this mark on the forehead, mark on the hand, and the number 666, and we all have opinions, probably. Right? That has been so debated, so throughout history. Like when, for example, when the Visa credit card came out, there was a, a, a theory that said, oh, if you use a Visa credit card, that is the mark of the beast. And they justified this by saying, well, V is this letter in the Greek alphabet and I, and so somehow, then you divided by 17 and you got 666, right? And so like whatever math you do, you can always come up with a theory, but I don't really think that's it. But I do want to ask and answer the question, what, what is the mark on the hand? What is the mark on the forehead? What is the 666? And again, family conversation. I want to try and explain this to you in the best I can. First, I want to look at to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast. Again, you could take this literally. There could be a time in this great tribulation period when the Antichrist is ruling and he's really in charge of the world where unless you say, pledge allegiance essentially to the Antichrist, you may not be able to do anything. That's a legitimate probability even. Uh, for example, in ancient Roman times, citizens of Rome would have to say, Caesar is Lord. And if they didn't, there were real consequences. That very well could happen. But I also think, oftentimes in the scriptures, the mind is representative, or an image on the mind is representative of really an ideology or a belief. Hands are often representative of the outworking or the actions that really back up and support that belief. So, for example, if we go back into the Bible in Deuteronomy chapter 6, right, one of the most famous scriptures in Deuteronomy, most famous scriptures in all of the Bible. I know we're all over the place in scripture, but it's the best way I know how to do it. All right, all over the place. But God, God the Father, he's about to teach Israel how to worship him. And he, he says this. In verse 4, he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down. And when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. 
You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So is God literally saying, hey, in order to follow me, you need to write down scripture and you need to glue it to your forehead. Well, believe it or not, uh, in ancient Israel, they used to actually do that. These things called phylacteries, uh, they would put scripture on their forehead and these big things and they'd walk around. It's like, was that the point? Maybe. But something tells me God's intention, yes, God wanted Israel to teach their children the laws and teachings of the Lord. But God's intention was for them to know the laws, to have them continually running in their minds. He says, put them on the frontlets of your eyes. I don't think God meant to tattoo the entire law on their eyelids. He's just saying, think about the word, think about the scripture. What about the things hanging in the hands? Again, I think literally what he's saying is, no, the outworking of your life should be representative of what it is you believe. And I think we can carry that same interpretation into the end times here and the book of Revelation. And the question then is, are we living a mindset and a theology and a belief that worships the beast? Actions that worship Satan? Or are we living in a mindset with actions that worship God and who he is? I think that's the real question. Now, what about this 666? What do we do with that? Well, here's what I would say that. Here you have three characters. Remember the Satan and the two beasts. Beast one, beast two. Really, they represent an unholy trinity, don't they? Think about that. There's, there's this father figure in Satan. The, the Satan character gives all of his authority to the first beast, the Antichrist, just as God the Father gives all authority to the Son in Jesus. And what does the, the second beast do? He gives worship to the first beast. What does the Holy Spirit do? He changes us. He makes us reborn so that we worship Christ and that we can actually be obedient to who Jesus is. And so here you really have this counterfeit false trinity. The number seven represents perfection. I know, hang on with me. I sound like a crazy person this morning, but hang with me, okay? The number seven represents completeness and wholeness. What's seven minus one? Six. You're welcome. I can count on that one. I've messed up a lot of equations on a Sunday morning, but that one I got right, okay? So this this number, and three is also a, a perfect number in a sense. So you get seven, seven, seven. That would really represent God the Father, the Son, or God the, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. One minus that is really the perfect number of imperfection. 666 is really the number for Satan, the Antichrist, and the beast. Right? Do you see that? And so when it says the the, the number adds up to 666, it's essentially saying, I believe, watch what you're worshiping. Watch how you're worshiping and look out for this future ultimate revealing of Satan and his minions and his enemies. And so then we get All of that being said, and it's a whole lot of scripture, it's a lot of details, and I think we have to ask the question, so what? Like, what do we do about this? Now, again, I believe this is not yet. Much of what we just read is not yet. And yet already, I think we have to watch what we do, watch how we worship, watch what we worship. And so we have all of that, and I want to read one more verse this morning. Chapter 14, verse 1. He sees all of this, a new scene. Then I looked, and behold, on the Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. They belong to God. And you could take different views on who this 144,000 are. The view I'll take this morning is just to say the people of God, gathered by the Father, God 
wins. They belong to him through faith in Christ. And so then stepping back, how does this change my day today? How does this change my day tomorrow? What do I do with all of this information that seems a little bit overwhelming? Point number one is this. Satan will rage. Jesus will win. Satan will rage. Jesus will win. If you come away with nothing else this morning other than than that, great. Okay? Satan has tactics. His goal is to get you to worship him. Already. That's his tactic. It's going to amplify more and more toward the coming of Christ. That's his goal. He wants to destroy. He wants to get your allegiance. He wants to get your worship. And that's what he is going to do. So then what do we do with that? Well, we can fight Satan and glorify Jesus in the already as we await the not yet. So what do we do then to take steps to fight against the enemy and the schemes of the enemy in this already present age as we await the future not yet age? And I think there's some really practical things that we can do to to take a stand in the fight against the enemy today. There are private things we can do and there are public things we can do. Private thing you can do is to study the word and to read the word. One of the ways that you can avoid being deceived and fooled by the enemy is to know the truth. I've used this illustration before, but the way FBI agents encounter and identify counterfeit money, they don't sit around studying counterfeit money all day. What they do is they sit around studying real money all day. And so church, if you don't want to be deceived, don't go looking at all the conspiracy theories. Instead, focus your attention on the word. Because the more clearly you know the word and the more you understand the word, the more you're going to be able to identify the false stuff immediately. That's a private thing you can do to take a stand for who Jesus is today. Do you spend time in prayer? How often are you praying? I know I've been convicted of this one recently. There's so many things going on. And how often am I just trying to fix the problem versus getting quiet with God and saying, God, you work where I cannot. God, you move in people's lives where I cannot. God, you make things happen where I cannot. We fight the enemy when we plead with God to work on our behalf. It's not to say that we don't need to do things, but it is to say that God is more powerful than we are, and he can do far more than we can. You take a stand against the enemy privately when you pray and when you read. What about publicly? What can we do to take a stand for who Jesus is in this evil and increasingly corrupt age? Well, we can share our faith. (laughs) Genuinely talk about who Jesus has made us to be. And I think when we say that in church all the time, it's like, yeah, 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 I know. But, but really, like, yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> See, oftentimes I think we don't feel equipped. Like, me? I can't do that. If you have a personal relationship with Jesus, you actually have everything you need to share the reality of Jesus with someone else. And so then maybe you can go about praying for God to create you opportunities where he's moving in people's hearts already, and then you're just the next person that person interacts with, and you can share a testimony of God's greatness in your life. And maybe he can work through that. Maybe for you, next week we have baptisms. Baptisms are a tremendous way to say, I belong to Jesus. If you haven't yet taken that public step, maybe you're a follower of Jesus and you just haven't yet done that, What you're saying is, I'm already saved, but I'm going to be baptized as a symbol of my death underwater and the new life that I'm being brought into. And I'm doing that publicly to say, I belong to Jesus. And we as the church get to watch that, to celebrate that. But man, that's an attack against the enemy, isn't it? It's such an attack against the enemy to publicly and boldly say, no, I belong to Jesus. Now, I want to challenge us. Next week, we're going to take a break from Revelation, 
and we're just going to talk about baptism. And so if that's you, we'll have everything you need here. Maybe you weren't planning on it. We'll have a change of clothes. We'll have all the stuff. If you want to be baptized next week, please, we would love for that to happen. And the last thing I think we can do, at least that I'll say this morning, is we can take part in communion together as the church. And so we're going to close with that this morning. If you are a believer in Jesus, maybe you're visiting from another church, I absolutely invite you to take communion with us. If you're here this morning and you would say, you know what, I'm not yet a believer in Jesus, I would ask you, don't take communion, okay? Because you'd be saying something that's untrue about yourself and we don't want, to, don't want you to do that. If you need the elements, uh, raise your hand. We'll have one of our volunteers go around with, with some cups and they can get you uh, those cups, uh, I hope. Um, and we'll make sure we, we get those taken care of. So church, uh, when we're taking communion, as they pass these out, I just want to explain this. We could go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I'm just going to explain it this morning. What we're saying when we're taking communion is, I am, I am claiming for myself the broken body of Jesus, broken for me. And I am claiming for myself the blood of Jesus poured out so that I wouldn't experience the wrath of God, but Jesus experienced the wrath of God against my sin. Talk about an attack against Satan. What we're doing collectively this morning is saying, Jesus for me. Jesus in my place. Jesus' death so that I can have life. Jesus wins. And so church, I want to take just 30 or so seconds. I want you to assess your hearts and to pray. So take a moment, confess sin to the Lord if you need to confess sin, whatever it is you need to do, assess your heart with the Lord. You can do that now. At this time, you can prepare your elements. Go ahead and take out the little wafer. And again, as we're doing this, what we're saying is like, no, Jesus literally had to come and live, be crushed for our iniquities. Let's not take this lightly. So together, let's take the bread. And then the cup, Jesus' blood spilled for us. Our sins covered because of the slain lamb. Together we take the cup. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. Um, thank you for communion. Just this reminder, Jesus, of what you have done for us so that we can have new life. God, I just want to ask, um, this morning there's a lot of scripture, a lot of details, a lot of potentially confusing things, but would you just settle in our hearts the fact that, Jesus, you win, and, and we, get to, we get to live lives today that, that can glorify you. Or we could live lives that glorify the enemy. So I just want to settle in our hearts real, real clearly, by the power of your Spirit, God, would you help us identify ways that we can live lives that glorify you, Jesus? 
And would you help us identify ways that maybe we're living that are actually glorifying the enemy? And would you give us just a heart of repentance there, Father? That we would desire, by the power of your spirit, to put to death what is sinful within us. We want to live for you. We want to glorify you, Jesus. We love you. We trust you. It's in Christ's name we pray.